Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Thanks so much for uh, joining us as ever. As is now tradition, it seems, we start with some messages from some listeners. I've been asking where you listen to the podcast. James gets in touch, say, long-time listener, tuning in whilst skiing the base of the Matterhorn Mountain in Zermatt, Switzerland. He's even sent me some photos as proof. Uh, keep up the good work. The podcast is a constant source of news and entertainment. I, I can't possibly comment on that, but I'll take your uh, word for it. Noah gets in touch. Absolutely love the show. I'm 23 years old and I listen to the podcast while I'm weightlifting at the gym in Leeds. Perhaps one of the less glamorous answers. Well, I don't know about that, Noah. And finally, Helen gets in touch. You ask about glamorous or not places from which your listeners are listening. My location is definitely not glamorous. I'm behind with my listening, having looked after my grandchildren over half time. So catching up today while changing the bed, cooking and cleaning the lavatory. Oh, Helen, come on. There's no need for that on the podcast. Anyway, coming up on the podcast today. Oh, by the way, if you want to get in touch and let me know where you listen, you can email me matt.chorley at times.radio. Coming up on the podcast today, uh, you may well have seen there's two films out right now which which touch on the story of the Black Panthers. Uh, you've got The Trial of the Chicago 7, in which you can see uh, Bobby Seale on trial alongside the Chicago 7. And there's also uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, which shows the shooting of Fred Hampton, uh, who was one of the leaders of the Black Panthers. So I've caught up with Stephen Shames, who was the official photographer of the Black Panthers, to ask him what what it was like being in the thick of it 55 years ago and how little it has changed in America since. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Let's talk football and politics. Danny, should the government be getting involved in the Super League? They are private businesses doing what private businesses do. Um, I, I'm horrified by the Super League, but I'm not convinced the government can stop it or ought to do so. And I think it has unintended consequences if it tries. So I think that it's reasonable that the government wants to put itself on the side of football clubs um, uh, who are lower down the chain because those are the seats it represents. And it actually gives some content to the whole idea of defending you know, declining towns if you're looking after the precarious finances of, of, of uh, local football clubs. So it completely makes political sense. I'm just not clear there's anything much it can do. That I, I should say... Um, I, I, I desperately don't want this to happen. Um, and I don't think football fans... I think they're making a commercial miscalculation is what I think. I think they think football fans, uh, future ones, admittedly, rather than current ones, are going to love this game more um, if they do make these changes. And I think they're wrong. Uh, where do you stand on this, David? Um, I'm deeply depressed by it. But I'm deeply depressed, I've gradually realised, because I'm beginning to think that the kind of fanship that we all talk about and the kind of fanship actually that people like Danny and I have had, we've gone along, we've been season ticket holders, you know, gone along to lots of matches, been a very important part of our lives. We have imagined to some extent, because this is the, this is the rhetoric, that the game belongs to us. And I just think that over the course of the last 30 years, that gradually has been less and less true. And that now the game does believe, does belong to as much to the supporter watching it in Uganda or in Singapore 
as it does to us in in reality. Whether or not it morally should or it morally shouldn't is is a kind of not another matter. And the other thing I think, kind of looking at the, the structures of ownership, say in Germany, and how that developed over the years, and how we've developed ours. I can't help feeling this terrible feeling that we sold the pass on this a long time ago, a really, a, you know, a really quite a long time ago. Um, and I don't see that there is any kind of practical legal way that the government can stop this. I mean, even things you, 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 you had a little nib earlier about uh, from Ali McCoist about whether or not you could stop players playing for their country. And you suddenly realise that this is an empty threat. You can't actually stop these players playing for their country. And quite a lot of this is sort of it is posturing. We've seen this thing coming at us for years. When this thing is written up, eventually, if, the, if, the, if, if this league goes ahead, we will say that we were warned at every stage during the course of the last 30 years that this is where we would end up. And now we've ended up there and we don't like it, though, as Danny quite rightly says, it's quite possible that future generations of fans, you know, boys and girls now 10, 11, 12, they won't mind it at all. They might not. I'm not so convinced by that. But interesting what David said. I, I was uh, looking for academic articles in this on this last night, and uh, I, I, taught, I knew a, a man called Stefan Szymanski, who's a good economist on football matters, so I looked up his papers, and I realised he'd written a paper about the Americanization of Euro, European football and the creation of a closed Super League, and the paper was dated 1999. <laughs> right, so David is correct. It has been coming at us for twenty years. The the big question is um, is to which we should keep an you know people should keep an open mind is is it actually what fans want um, and um, maybe not the existing fans who are completely opposed to it, but future fans. My personal view is. I think it's a miscalculation. I don't think people want that game every week. Um, and I think um, it will reduce the, rather than increase the appeal of the game. But it's a hypothesis. I can understand the alternative. Uh, Danny, I don't because I go along to the games and I have incredibly valued the sort of breadth of uh, clubs that Tottenham play or that Chelsea play and so on. You know, yes, I, me too. I love it. I love it when Chester come along for the cup and so on, and not just because we're likely to beat them, although in Tottenham's case, that's yeah, yeah. a bonus. So we enjoy <laughs> drawing small teams, too, like Spurs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so for the benefit of listeners, Danny, Danny supports Chelsea. Uh, David supports uh, Spurs. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the, I suppose the, the big question is, both of you are very cross about this. If this goes ahead, will you tear up your season ticket or uh, ultimately are you still going to go along and watch whoever they play? David. Uh, yeah, note, note the silence there after Danny's bit of banter because this is a really tricky question. You're very uh, cross, but not... And, 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 I thought, and I, I, I've thought about uh, this one too. And I think the answer is I will go. Uh, that's the truth of it. Now, people will now write to me and say, and I'll get horrible tweets saying, you bastard, etc." for doing... Am I allowed to say that, by the way? Is that a word we're allowed to use? Well, anyway, you have now. You whatever. You whatever <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Apologi your bleeping system. Apologies, apologies for the potty. <laughs> yeah, You're not on the many apologies, now, David. Yeah, you so-and-so, etc. Um, I love watching live football, and I can't not support a team that I have supported since I was 10, which is now 56 years. I, I do know people who did take the decision, for example, when Wimbledon were effectively wound up and taken to Milton Keynes. There were fans there who did actually do that and then set up their own club and so on. 
I just can't see it happening in this kind of instance. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm too ancient, really, to contemplate a, a change like that. So I guess I probably, or either that or I'll stop altogether. Is that your puppy again, uh, da uh, Daddy? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, a very, very, it's a very, very cute dog. Um, uh, Danny, what about the risk politically? You know, the, the, the politicians quite often don't dip their toe into sport very often, largely because, you know, they end up having to pick sides or, in David Cameron's case, pick several sides. Um, but uh, there's a risk here, isn't it, that Boris Johnson raises expectations of saying, oh, we must not allow this to go ahead, and it might end up going ahead. Uh, whereas if he'd just said from the beginning, well, this is a matter for the football clubs. Um, you know, this could end up becoming a government yeah. failure if this goes ahead. Well, I do. I don't think he, I don't think that was an option for him, actually. Um, I mean, it's hilarious because nobody is less knowledgeable or interested in football than either Oliver Dowden or Boris Johnson, two of my <laughs> two of my sort of contacts Possibly I've met. Me. <laughs> less interested, I, it's hard to imagine. And people said David Cameron wasn't interested in it, but he really was much more than Boris is. Um, but uh, no, look, this is, um, I think, Lots of voters feel unbelievably, incredibly strongly about it. As David pointed out, although this may be hard for people who have no interest in football to to appreciate, this is actually quite a big part of my life. Actually, and preposterous though it is to say that, uh, almost embarrassing though it is to say it out loud, but it is. And mm. I I think, and it is important to me. And so, if the government can do something, I hope it will do it. I don't think people will blame them if if they can't stop it, but they hope that they can and they want somebody to do something. I think most people are looking to the Premier League to do something and FIFA and UEFA, although it's not obvious to me they either legally or commercially will be able to stop it. No, I mean, I, I, I don't want to suggest that somehow or other Florentina Perez and the people who are advising him are uh, omnipotent, but it's pretty obvious that there's a lot of planning going into this and a lot... and. All these things, all these sanctions that people are threatening taking out against them, they will have factored into their calculations about whether or not they're going to be legal, not legal, and so on. There will have been, uh, unless they're just idiotic, and I find that hard to believe, although I suppose it is possible, then in that case they've been thinking about this for a long time. The whole thing has been so well planned um, uh, and you know, so kind of... It's, it's almost it's almost like there's some kind of James Bond villain behind it. All. <laughs> Although, of course, they generally come unstuck. Who's kind of gone through? Uh, who's gone through it all? And this looks to me like they've done their homework. But maybe I'm wrong. We'll wait and see. We'll see. Yeah, Boris Johnson's. Uh, I think he's meeting uh, football bosses right now uh, to try and do something. I think I'd imagine they'll just sit around the table saying, well, "Have you got any ideas?" Uh, but we'll wait to see uh, what. Well, which emerges. ones will he be meeting, Matt? Which ones will he be meeting? He won't be meeting the people representing the clubs that are going to are planning to break or uh, planning to set up this Super League. Oh, so he's going to be meeting the others. Yes, he'll just be meeting other people who are very cross. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I think you're probably, I think you're probably right. We'll wait, to, we'll wait to see, we'll wait to see what emerges from me. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, is what happens when thinkers, obviously we are, I think the whole nation is gripped by election fever. Uh, we are in the <laughs> middle of the election campaign ahead of May the 6th. Um, and because, you know, things have eased a little bit, finally some politicians getting out and about in the wild, and things go uh, a bit wrong. Let's take a listen to what happened when uh, Keir Starmer went to Bath yesterday. In my pub. Get out of my pub. Go on. Get out of my pub. Right, so that was uh, the landlord of a pub in Bath. He actually had a bit of a set to with Keir Starmer outside, and Keir Starmer made uh, quite plain that he didn't agree with him on 
on uh, why he should have been opposing lockdown and uh, and, and praised uh, the NHS. But Danny, what do what should politicians do? And this happens to all politicians of all parties when oh. confronted by a very cross person who might be eccentric in their position, possibly. <laughs> yes. Well, I was a bit surprised that, I, that Keir Starmer went into the pub. I thought we all weren't allowed in the pub, but actually... so. But I, I, I it's very difficult. Um, and actually, the more difficult one is when someone agrees with you, um, but with a horrendous argument that you can't let go. So they say something, they say, I'm going to support you because I'm a... Ra-, you know, effectively, I'm a... Ra-. I, somebody said to me, I, I'm not... Um, he said, I'm not a racist. I just don't like black people. And you sort of, what do you, you know, you, you, have, you then have to pick them up on it. Um, and that becomes a sort of embarrassing thing because they're trying to be friendly uh, and you can't let them be uh, because they've just said something you can't, you can't, you can't stick. So, um, th- but there are occasions. Yeah, I, I once uh, told somebody that, I, that they were banned from voting for me uh, because they, they <laughs> told me they couldn't understand how I could be a conservative because my wife was a doctor and I found that so annoying. Uh, at, at which point she started to say, I, I can vote if I want and I said no you can't and um, uh, the, uh, I was enjoying myself with her uh, increasingly shrill pro- proclamation and did you get elected anyway. Danny um, did you get elected <laughs> no sadly but it wasn't by one vote <laughs> well, I think um, we know why there, 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 were, there were literally there were literally thousands of people who who, uh, who took against me David but the, um, the I, I would say it is quite hard um, to deal with voters you just have uh, who are saying things like I mean in his case he was kind of saying a lot of fallacious things about vaccinations and, and, and lockdowns. So lockdowns, actually, rather than vaccinations. And um, and you can't... It's difficult. You can't just let those go. But I thought Keir Starmer dealt with him perfectly politely. Um, he maybe could have used the opportunity to make a point back, but it was the guy was so out of control that um, that was hard to do. But I don't think he should feel that he was the loser in that exchange. I think that the guy just made himself look a fool. Actually, David, the way that people, the way that politicians deal with members of the public is always quite telling, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't, and it's partly why uh, politicians, particularly senior politicians, don't do, don't do it very often, even without a pandemic. Um, yeah, and you yeah. end up with David yeah, no, Cameron standing in the corner of a warehouse or whatever <laughs> to try and avoid no, actual members yeah. of the public. You're on a hiding to nothing, essentially. Um, if somebody, if, if if somebody who styles themselves an ordinary member of the public has a kind of great big go at you, then in that case, the press coverage is likely to say that you were embarrassed when you were out walking, despite the fact that actually the embarrassment should be entirely attached to the person who's attacking you because they look incontinent and ridiculous as this as this pub. I mean, I thought at the uh, when I watched that, well, I might vote for Keir Starmer, but I'm certainly not going in your bloody pub. Um, you know, that, 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 is, that is for certain sure, because, you know, God alone knows what it's going to be like in there. If you're kind of serving behind the bar and you suddenly take a strop on or says, you know, you don't like what somebody said about the lockdown, you keep coming for them. I, I, I have a slightly kind of pugilistic view of these things, which was uh, gained by the 2001 election when John Prescott was hit on the head by a guy with a very thick set guy with a mullet who hit him on the head with an egg. And obviously, John Prescott was very, very momentarily alarmed because after all, that could have been, you know, a gunshot or something. You don't know in that second. And he turned around and he gave him a whack 
in the face. A really good punch. And, the, uh, uh, and immediately the press thought, this is an absolute disaster. This is good. They, they equated it, I think, with Jack Straw being heckled by the police uh, 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 at the police conference and so on. Uh, this is going to be absolutely terrible for him, etc. Tony Blair, who had quite a good sense of these things, merely said when he was asked, well, John will be John, he said. And most people took the view that he was enti- perfectly entitled to whack this bloke in the face. And actually, they wished they'd whacked somebody like that in the face last time they were confronted with somebody like that. And the whole thing went away. And so I'm slightly regretful that Clear Starmer just didn't turn around and give him one. And I can see why he <laughs> can't, my, etc. But, uh, but I wouldn't my, uh, have been upset friends... if he had. <laughs> one of my friends who was advised to Tony Blair told me, and I, and I don't know whether this is actually vindicated by what happened, but he said he was with Tony Blair afterwards, and he after he'd said, "Let John, that's John, just John being John," and he and and then he suddenly saw the incident on television and had not in fact done so until that point. <laughs> and he suddenly goes, "Oh my God, is that what he did?" Um, now I, I'm not, as I say, I'm not. Uh, that's that's what I was told about it. Um, I mean, you can't obviously, you've got to be. Effectively, the problem is that although John Prescott did that in the, on the spur of the moment, and the guy did assault him. When someone's actually just making an annoying argument, obviously, you, <laughs> David's um, David's advice notwithstanding, you can't do that. The question is how whether you walk away or you rebut it. That's the that's the the big choice, and it's a choice actually on the doorstep as well. When people start to disagree, I'm afraid I'm a terrible rebutter. I I can't let the argument go. And that probably <laughs> Keir Starmer's approach is the correct one, is just to walk away. Yeah, well, I suppose hitters and walk awayers. Those are your two, your three possibilities. Those are the three options. I suppose well, that's the thing, though, yeah. isn't it? Is on the, the campaign chart, there's a difference between if it's just you and somebody on their doorstep, you, can, you could be completely feeble and say, oh, yes, no, of course, that's fine, and then walk away and say, oh, dreadful person. Uh, uh, but if there was a TV camera there, you're playing to two audiences. There's the audience of uh, the person attacking you, uh, but then there's also the audience of people watching the TV footage. And did you challenge someone saying something offensive? Uh, did you, or, or are, you know, are you calculating? Probably not so much in Keir Starmer's case, but sometimes there'll be a calculation of uh, maybe actually a bit like Gordon Brown and um, Gillian Duffy. You know, the calculation of well, there were lots of Labour voters who were concerned about immigration. So even though he personally found what she was saying offensive, actually there were probably other people who agreed with her, and so yeah, but then he, you end up with a sort of slightly uh, you thank do, you for all he, that you do he, conversation. But he didn't tell her that. I mean, no, let's, exactly, let's, yeah. let's, let's remember, he didn't say it. It was a mic that he'd left on, and he was in the car afterwards, so it wasn't even as if he confronted her at the time, and so on. He probably did everything right up until the moment he left his mic on. Um, so there's your kind of mistake because you're entitled to say what I mean if Keir Starmer walked away etc and he hasn't got a mic on and he says about that bloke what a bloody moron etc but you can't hear there's no issue there I mean I think in on the whole the best thing to try and do in front of the camera is to try and say to this person even if they're being unreasonable should we talk about this sensibly do you want to discuss this and if the person then just keeps shouting at you say well clearly you don't but maybe some other time you will but it's very difficult to think of that in the moment not least because you know you there is some concern for your safety it's quite obvious that one of the guys who was I, I guess he was his bodyguard or something like with Starmer, actually did think there was a threat. Daniel Finkstein and David Ivanovich, then, of course, you can read them both in the Times every week. Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, photographing the Black Panthers. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now then, the jury in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the ex-Minneapolis policeman, accused of killing George Floyd last year, has now retired to consider its verdict. Meanwhile, in Minnesota, a black man was shot by mistake because the officer thought she'd drawn her taser. It's all too familiar, isn't it? Time and again, news of a young unarmed black man shot dead by police, sparking anguish and anger on the streets of America. An all too familiar story. But this story uh, now begins back in 1966, when a teenager named Matthew Johnson was shot by a police officer in San Francisco. The social uprising that followed gave birth to the Black Panther Party. 55 years later, the Black Panthers feature in not one but two huge films about that period. Uh, Maybe you've seen them already. The Trial of the Chicago 7 features Black Panther founder Bobby Seale in court alongside seven protesters who opposed the Vietnam War. A subplot of that film centres on Fred Hampton, who sits in court advising Seal until he is shot dead by police while asleep in bed. The background to his killing is the subject of another incredible movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. This tells the story of how the FBI infiltrated the Black Panthers on the orders of J. Edgar Hoover, who described the Panthers as the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. Now, despite being half a century old, these stories obviously now seem horribly familiar and will leave audiences wondering about the Black Panthers, why they existed and what they achieved before they disbanded in 1982. Well, one man who knows better than most is Stephen Shames, who was asked by Bobby Seale to become the party's official photographer. With Seal, he co-wrote the book in 2016, Power to the People, The World of the Black Panthers. I spoke to him earlier and began by asking him how he found himself as the party's photographer. Well, I was a, a student at the University of California at Berkeley, which, as you may know, back in those days um, was kind of a hotbed of radicalism. Um, the Panthers were always at the university, and, and uh, I the first time I saw Bobby 
was I was actually at the first uh, peace march. And as we were marching, I saw these two black men who were selling Mao's little red book. And I took one picture and and continued marching. And then later, um, you know, I would see the Panthers at at the campus. And I I was starting to take pictures. The, The Panthers had their office in Berkeley on Shattuck Avenue. And I brought some pictures by and Bobby liked them. And I I guess uh, some people thought I had talent as a photographer. And so the relationship just grew. And I I became the one person that they really trusted to photograph them, not just their public uh, appearances and rallies, but in the offices and behind the scenes. And it describe what the Black Panthers were at that early stage, the Black Panther Party, but not a political party in the sense that we might necessarily imagine now when when you well, joined actually them. they they were a political party as you would imagine now even from the early days so let okay. me start first of all what is happening today with the police in the black community has been going on for many many years in more than 50 years and the one of the impetus for the founding of the party was police brutality and the murder of of young uh, black men. So the first thing that the Panthers did was to patrol the police, which they they did with a law book and with a gun. Back then, carrying guns was legal in California to openly carry guns. So the Panthers were doing nothing illegal. So that was kind of the, the start of the party. But the Panthers also had a 10-point program. It wasn't just about the police. It, it really was about decent housing, jobs, you know, a whole number of, of programs, education. They, they One of their points was education that tells the true history of our people. Again, in 1966, when the Panther Party started, there were no black studies departments, no women's studies departments. The contributions of black, you know, African-Americans was not taught in schools or in colleges. Now, as to whether they were a political party, as early as 1968, the Panthers were registering people to vote and working with the Peace and Freedom Party, which was a third party, mostly white activists, students, professionals, and and others um, in California mainly, but also it was a national party, but it was mainly in California and a few states. And the Panthers actually ran candidates for office, for state assembly, for Congress. So the Panthers were, especially under Bobby Seale, They were a revolutionary party, but revolutionary within the system in the sense that they ran candidates, they supported candidates, they registered tens of thousands of people to vote. They weren't some little splinter party that wanted to march on the Capitol with guns and try and overthrow it, as Trump supporters did. Um, (laughs) they, They never really preached arms insurrection they they really were revolutionary but working within within the system and that's something that a lot of people don't understand about the the black panthers and something that j edgar hoover and president nixon lied about when they made their uh co pro uh to destroy the panthers 
Yeah, and that's very clear from the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, which is out now and shows how Fred Hampton was assassinated as a part of a, of a programme overseen by J. Edgar Hoover, who described the Black Panthers as the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. Um, I just wonder, what did you see as your role as photographer of the Black Panthers? Were you a, a bystander, an independent sort of journalist, just merely capturing what was happening? Or were you a supporter, a pop- propagandist even, uh, who was part of the, the party's publicity machine? I, I wasn't specifically part of the publicity machine. I was an independent photojournalist, but I supported the party. And, you know, what, one thing that people don't, which you would know, but maybe some of your listeners don't understand, is obviously as journalists we have opinions, but as journalists the truth has to trump our opinions. So even though we may support specific candidates or parties, or I supported the Panthers, uh, Bobby Seale was a mentor of mine and taught me a lot. You know, I was a journalist who was, I believed was reporting, um, was reporting the truth and I was taking pictures. Um, one of the things that was very important to me is, it, you know, if you look at, at news, the news media, even today, it's it's more diversified, but the news media is not very diverse. It's mostly white men. And back then it was almost entirely white men. And actually, I'm a white man, so I'm part of that. Um, but But the fact of the matter is, you know, when black men were in the media, it was almost always when they were criminals. They had a uh, black man, you know, was on the news because he robbed a bank. But the kind of the everyday life of black people was very rarely reported in the media back then. And and some and many people criticize the media even today that it's not entirely that way. And that that's important. People who live in diverse communities tend to be less prejudiced than people who live in rural communities where they may not see Muslims or blacks or, uh, quote, foreigners. And this is true in the UK and the United States. And the reason is that they only get a limited view from what they may see, you know, in a few news accounts. The, the, the fear of the unknown is something which stretches back into sort of human history. And you're right, if the entire media perception of black people in America in the 1960s was of um, angry, violent criminals, then that that's the, you know, that was the only message that people were receiving was, I've got a, a slideshow of, of some of your photos of the, of the Panther Party in front of me. And it shows uh, Bobby Seale, Hugh, Huey Newton and others at home uh, with children, with their loved ones, um, and actually doing lots of work, you know, particularly with the free free breakfasts. Um, the, the party did. You you touched on the fact that you are a white man, and yeah, I'm also a white, you know, guilty white man working in the media. But how how was it being a white man within the Black Panther community? Because the and I know this is obviously the nature, nature slightly of, of films, but the impression you get from particularly the uh, Judas and the Black Messiah uh, movie is that you've got Black Panther Party, black people on one side and the FBI and white people on the other side. There were a lot of white people around the Black Panther Party. The Panthers were not racist. Um, Bobby Seale would state it many times publicly, you know, we're not black nationalists. We want to work with 
all people. In fact, in fact, the Rainbow Coalition was started by Fred Hampton, who was a Panther. Yeah, and of course, that's something that, that's shown in uh, the film as well, is the, the way that Fred Hampton brought together the Rainbow Coalition of just lots of disaffected groups, whether that was the uh, Young Lords uh, of young Puerto Ricans in America alongside the Young Patriots, a group of mostly white people from the South uh, disaffected and, and flying the Confederate flag, so bringing them uh, all together. There's another myth about the Panthers. When shortly before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King, um, and it's probably why he was assassinated, started to speak out not just about race, but also about poverty and the links between poverty and race, and also spoke out against the war in Vietnam. And about six months before he was assassinated, his he wanted to create a, a national coalition of organizations. The Panthers were included in that. So again, some of the perceptions that the Panthers, and some of the Panthers did criticize Martin Luther King, but the top leadership, you know, including Bobby Seale, in 1968, agreed to work with him on, on, on this coalition, even though they didn't agree with all of his, they didn't agree, they believed in self-defense, they didn't agree, you know, with the non-violent only approach. They said, if we, if someone attacks us, we will defend ourselves. And that that's a very American thing, which is hard for Europeans to understand. Bobby Seale supported um, Obama's uh, gun control uh, legislation. Um, Bobby Seale at that time said publicly, you know, if we were organizing today, I wouldn't have carried guns openly. The cell phone is the best weapon we have today against uh, police brutality. You don't need to confront them with guns today. We have the cell phones and, and the internet. And that's actually, he said that, you know, 10 years or more ago, but that's actually proved to be true. We may actually see a conviction of the, the you know, the policeman who killed Mr. Floyd is because of all the video. You know, these incidents have come out again and again and, and, and again. And I think that that's starting to, to shift public opinion to understand that that the whole system of policing in the United States, it isn't a matter of bad apples or this or that. It's the whole system of policing. Drug uh, Police look for drugs in the black community. They don't really look for, for marijuana and other drugs in the white community. And we know white people are using illicit drugs as, as much as black people. The whole system of, of policing and justice needs major reform. And that was one of the things that the Black Panthers you know, we're in their 10 points. And unfortunately, 55 years later, this this fall is going to be the 55th anniversary of the founding of the Black Panther Party. And, and 55 years later, all of the same issues that the Panthers talked about. I mean, that's really a sad testament to my country. This is Matt Chorley speaking to Stephen Shames, who was the official photographer of the Black Panther Party in the late 60s and early 70s, discussing the lack of progress on so many issues. There have been progress on the teaching of black history, which is better in America than it was 50 odd years ago.
and also on representation within the democratic system. In 1968, Bobby Seale claimed that they, in 1967, 68, in the United States, out of half a million elected officials from <laughs> local school boards, uh, county officials, mayors, representatives, senators, president, all you know, all the way up, uh, out of half a million elected officials in the United States, only 50 were African American. That obviously has changed. We had our first African-American president. There are senators and, and representatives, mayors. Uh, the mayor of Chicago actually is a, is, a, is a gay black woman. I mean, so there's been progress in elected officials. There has been progress in the teaching of African-American history. But everything else in terms of jobs, wealth, housing, police, the justice system, all the main planks of the Panther 10-point program and platform, there has been not only very little progress in some areas like the number of, of black men who are in prison, it's actually worse now than it was in 1968. I wonder what you think can be done now. I wonder if you're still discussing this with uh, Bobby Seale, you know, that having set up the Black Panthers 55 years ago. All the same issues still need addressing. As an organisation, it crumbled away, but the the issues are still there. I wonder, do we, do we need a Black Panther party of the 21st century? Well, of course, no. I, 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 there, there definitely is, is a need. I mean, Black Lives Matter is there, and they're, they're doing things. And actually, Bobby and Erica Huggins and... Um, other uh, Panthers actually talk to them and have urged them to become more like the, the, the Panthers in the sense of becoming more of a political party and not just a protest movement. The, the thing that was incredible about the Black Panthers is, was that were their survival programs. In addition to the breakfast program, which preceded the United States government, Lyndon Johnson feeding school children. It preceded his war on poverty and was one of the reasons that he and the government and some state governments actually started feeding, feeding kids was because the Panthers were doing it and it was an incredible organizing tool. They gave away clothing, they had a uh, dental, they, they, they started free medical clinics, some of the first free medical clinics um, in, the, in the United States. They really w were embedded in the, in, in, in the community. And that's something which the liberal left movement isn't doing today. Of course, it was a couple of years ago now, I think, that Barack Obama uh, called out, you know, this idea of cancel culture or just thinking that because you'd, what was he said that if you'd, you, you thought that just because you'd tweeted something or you'd used a hashtag, you could sit back and think, yeah, no, I've done something uh, really good. And he said then, you know, that's not activism. That's not bringing about change. Obama, I mean, he actually knew the Panthers because the only time he was ever defeated was when he ran against Bobby Rush for Congress and Bobby Rush was a Panther, who had been a Chicago Panther. He's still in Congress. Bobby Rush is still a congressman, and he defeated Barack Obama. Okay, Stephen Shames, let's now talk about Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, the movie chronicling the way the FBI infiltrated the Black Panther Party 
and uh, leading ultimately to the death of the party's chairman, Fred Hampton. Let, let's take a listen to the trailer. Repeat after me. Stephen, you were the Black Panther's official photographer in and around these times. Having seen the movie, how does it compare the reality uh, to how it was portrayed on screen? Well, the movie really focused more on the Judas than it really focused on on the Panthers. I never um, met Fred Hampton, unfortunately. I, I, um, I was in Chicago photographing, but it was after he was assassinated. What I do know is the Panthers were working with all these other groups in the community that were liberal and left-wing groups. I I think it was mentioned in the movie, at one point the FBI went to um, the Black Stone Rangers, who were a big drug gang, mainly in the south side of Chicago. They tried, the FBI tried to get foment a gang war you know, to get the Blackstone Rangers to assassinate Fred Hampton, and they refused to do it, even though they didn't join with Fred Hampton. There's a scene in the movie where he tries to get them to join with him, and they don't, but they they refused to assassinate him, so the police had to go in, and the police had to assassinate him. To that extent, I think the movie may have been um, accurate, but I don't know that they really, really focused on on the Panthers. I mean, they didn't show the breakfast programs and all those programs that were going on to the extent that, uh, um, or the people coming into the Panther office and the Panthers actually helping people with their um, with their problems. They tended to kind of show the more militant Marxist you know, influence on the Panthers. And that was definitely there. But I know from experience, it was half and half. I know that uh, Bobby Seale, for instance, was not a socialist and he was not a Marxist. And Bobby Seale could have fit into the kind of social democratic tradition that you have in, in, in Europe. You know, he could have fit into that part of the Labour Party in, in, uh, you know, in Britain. So finally, Stephen Shames, uh, the thing that's really struck me, looking more and more, having seen the films and looked more and more into uh, the Black Panther Party, is that this year marks 55 years since it was set up back in 1966. It disbanded in 1982. And yet all of the issues that we've been discussing, whether it's uh, racial inequality, income inequality, food poverty... They're all still there. Health inequality, they're all uh, still there. So uh, what do you hope for, you know, in the next 55 years, uh, which might make some progress on these issues, which there hasn't really been in the last 55? So all these issues, I I really believe that Biden, that Joe Biden is going to go down as one of our greatest presidents. I think that what's interesting about him is that he's no lefty, he's no radical, he's very moderate, but he really understands the system. And I believe, given his some of his recent actions and statements since he's been president, I think he understands how dire the stakes are. 
and, and sees himself as the FDR, the Franklin Roosevelt of this generation who really saved the United States and saved that, you know, Churchill and Roosevelt actually saved civilization. And neither of them were saints. Um, you know, <laughs> Churchill's coming under a lot of attacks now. But but the fact of the matter is, I, I you know, I, I think some of these lefties are, have, have gone crazy. I think I, I'm one of those people who thinks that we ought to focus on these issues and forget about the the statues are like the 10th most or 20th most important things. I mean, it's really not important whether there's a Churchill statue. I think I think it's important that we teach a true history. Yes, he was a racist, but he also saved Western civilization. So, I mean, come on, we need to focus on the issues. It's more important to save the climate. It's more important to do things. And I think that's what Joe Biden is really great at. And that's something I learned from Bobby Seale and the Panthers, who were very, very, to bring it back to the Panthers, they were very, very, very practical. They weren't some pie-in-the-sky lefty idealists like so many of my lefty friends. Panthers were very, very, very uh, practical. They didn't always win. They were ahead of their time. Bobby Seale today is working. One of the things he's doing is working with a nonprofit to um, uh, train young black men in the construction industry. He's doing that in Oakland. He's working with a group that's doing that. The Panthers were always, you know, they had their revolutionary, um, you know, they were leftists in that extent, but they were also very, very practical. They understood that there wasn't necessarily going to be a Marxist revolution in the United States ever, or even a, a social democratic revolution in this country, but they understood that we needed to do these things. And so they worked with, they, they worked with people who tried to accomplish that. And that, that's one reason that I think that Biden may go down. I, I really believe he may go down as one of our greatest presidents because he may be able to accomplish some of the things that even eluded Obama. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 